Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Manischel. And I am Ulrich Brussel. This week, we have another throwback episode to way back before the pandemic started. We interviewed uh, Jeff Kerr and Ray Spivey, two co-directors who... um, are are they in their 60s? Is that confirmed? I think <laughs> they're in their 60s. I'm pretty certain. I think they're they, not in their 30s. How about that? I think they say that in the episode. Okay, sounds good. Well, we'll we'll just say, you know, not not 30s. Not they spring are, chickens. Not spring chickens, but still <laughs> fabulous individuals. Um, and we talked with them about making their first feature film, Writer's Block, which hits VOD on Tuesday, November 3rd. But first, Alric. You've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So we have some YouTube comments on our new wonderful YouTube page, which everyone should be on right now. If you're not on it now, you should get on it and watch us talk as we make expressions on our faces. Liz, what do you think of these YouTube comments we keep getting? Okay, I want to bring up the fact that, okay, we have a trailer for the YouTube page, right? And it just kind of lays out what we're doing with our YouTube page for making movies is hard. And two separate individuals, as far as I've researched, have posted the same icon uh, rendition of my face via emoticons. (laughs) Like it's, (laughs) they both are saying that my face looks like two eyes and nose and a mouth like that's what they're those that's the comment that they're making um and i don't know what it means and i've taken to twitter to ask people what it means and they don't know what it means and i think we should open it up if you are a master of the internet can you go on our youtube page to our trailer video and find out what these people mean when they post two eyes and a nose and a mouth in reference to my face (laughs) I just so I've been thinking about this a little bit, and I think it's just because in some of the video clips, especially that one, you're a little closer to the camera. I'm very close know? to the camera. And so yeah. it's like if I was like this the whole time, <laughs> you know, I think they would give the same comment to me. Not to say that you're that bad, but uh, more that close. But very I think close. I think that's what it is. And and it's funny because I've been thinking like, oh, my gosh, like I should be closer to my camera. No. because. Liz is like so well framed and I'm so far away, so distant. I'm not, I, I want to see if this is a thing. Like I, you know, I were talking about this before. It's like, are we too old to get this reference? Maybe there is because <laughs> it's two separate people saying the same thing. So maybe it comes from Reddit. Maybe it comes from TikTok. Maybe it's one of these, like right now there's like a bunny holding different uh, emoticons is going around Twitter. So maybe there's some sort of trend. It's it's, it's especially weird that you guys had a conversation about it in the, the, the freaking comments and then someone else says pages. the same thing right after. So it's like they didn't read that or they wanted to double down on this other person's comment. I, I don't know I mean, what it was. I just feel like tomorrow there's going to be another one. It's going to be like a third person who's going to be <laughs> like woman's face like this. The more we <laughs> talk about it, the more these of these icons are going to get. I, I bet you. Cause like I thought that it was on a different one for some reason. I didn't realize it was on the same video again. So it's on the video Anyways. we have most amount of views on. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's good. It's our trailer. They should have the most amount of views on it, right? That's true. And it's 
I guess just in general, we are looking at the comments. We are watching to see what people think. We're listening to your feedback. So that this, this obsessiveness on my end is just coming out of the fact that I look at every single video we post and we want to make sure um, that we create good content for everyone. So post, yeah. let us know how we're doing. I liked Lonzo Bentley's uh, comment because I got really excited. I saw a new comment on the video and then I go to read it and it just says first. Which is like extra it's so funny because there's like twelve views on it. There's twelve views. There's no one else is commenting, and he he felt like he needed to say first, get that in early, not at <laughs> the conversation, but just get it in. So Lonzo, thank you, sir, for that. It made me laugh. I just I feel like the engagement's good. Like I like that our numbers are growing again. Like it's up. Like the the Felicia Pride ones got. 30 views now which is great and the last one has 28 and the one before that has like 26 it's just we need to get the new one up it's at 12 so we need to get <laughs> i love we're talking it's about like 12 views 20 views they're such small numbers but it's true like they're small victories and we're just starting out we're not like champions of youtube influencing and we're not trying to do that we're just trying to like make ourselves available on all platforms but yes right. the fact that we're growing bit by bit and not declining is very important it's like alex ferrari with his fifty-eight thousand followers or whatever on youtube it's like i know that we're not going to be that anytime soon yeah but one day maybe yeah maybe after yeah. a joe bob briggs episode airs and the um, joe but- bob briggs preview video which is coming oh, soon i am excited about you guys that really excited about our episode with joe bob it's fun it's fun it's so my friend i talked to my friend about joe bob the other day he's like oh my god yeah joe bob in your show it's like i used to watch that guy when i was a kid i was like oh cool you know at least other people know who joe bob is we're not the only ones um (laughs) you should you guys should put uh in the comments do you like joe bob briggs yay or nay and then just see how many people are joe bob fans can uh, Um, create a poll just kidding but we do have a new Patreon and we have a new question. Yes, we do. Who is this person? Chris yes. Baxter, the Baxed, <laughs> the, the Chris, Bax. Chrissy Bax man. So Chris writes, um, we asked him, do you have any question you want us to bring up on the show? Any, any topic um, being a new Patreon of ours? And he said, maybe you can chat about what the biggest mistakes you feel indie filmmakers make in each state of filmmaking, uh, in each stage of filmmaking, any <laughs> Uh, references fundraising pre-production production post distribution i think that would be neat if not no worries what are some big mistakes that you think indie filmmakers make well i think the biggest mistake indie filmmakers make in fundraising is they don't do it yes <laughs> yes yes they just take out their credit cards and they put them put the movie on their credit card and then they lose a lot of money on their movie and um i'm guilty of this of course Uh, You know, but I I think, yeah, fundraising is really, really challenging. And I think people don't either they don't try to fundraise or they try a little and they don't have success and then they give up and then they figure out some other way to do it, which is fine. You know, but I think I don't know what the biggest mistake is besides just not putting in the time because it it really is like a time thing like you the more time you spend trying to fundraise for your movie the better you're gonna get and it is really hard it took me years to raise money for the alternate took me like freaking five four six years to raise money i mean that's the reason projects don't get off the ground immediately i would say i mean obviously we use the time during fundraising to finesse story and i think it's probably best that we're not going off and running right immediately But it's the same for me. It takes me years to fundraise. It also takes me years to cast. I think sound is probably the biggest mistake. 
is just, just not having good sound, not having good sound. It is so vital. There are millions of fantastic actors out there. There are millions of, you know, locations you can work with all these things that you can kind of be flexible with, but like to skimp on sound is like, I had a distribution. I didn't want to work with this distributor, but I had a distributor bail after like listening to my sound once oh really and and thinking like well this is not up to quality for us so do you think people don't do don't focus enough on sound i kind of feel like story <laughs> <It's a big laughs> sure. issue. i feel like scripting and coming up with a really great story to tell i think that's like the thing you see a lot joe bob speaking of even mentioned this he was like yeah you know every every movie looks amazing like people get that down like they make a movie look great like that's like the yeah. first thing like a young filmmaker will do is like make sure that their film looks awesome but then they don't necessarily take the time to really come up with a story that really really needs to be told you know and it's really mm -hmm. hard like stories are the, it's like one of the, the toughest thing i think so I don't know. I would just really like think about trying to really write a great movie and really make a movie that's going to be like, especially if you're making a short, for instance, like make a movie that the is going to fit for a good short film and not that it's not like a feature that you're trying mm -hmm. to cram into a short, you know, I don't know. So I would just really focus on that and make sure that you get that right. And then of course, I think casting is really important too. Like don't just put yeah. your friend in it. I think that's what a lot of people do when they're starting out they just put their friends in their movies. Um, and I've done that too, you know, and sometimes it works out really well and sometimes it, it doesn't, but I would try to like, you know, whatever stage you're at, try to get really good actors, you know, cause um, yeah, better actor, the better the movie. You know, I love that um, Sean and I are, you know, just like you were like big horror fans and we really like Joe Dante. And like there's certain mm -hmm. uh, directors we love who always cast certain actors like Dick Miller's and all these movies. Right. So oh, I like God, the idea of like the recurring actor who may not be the Brad Pitt of the film, but has or like how Ron Howard always has like Clint Howard, you know, this kind of like <laughs> friend like nepotism is fun and I like it in some pockets of filmmaking mm -hmm. and casting. So I'm supportive of that. But yeah, if you're just throwing your friends into those lead roles, I totally agree. It's not going to be the best product. Yeah. And then I guess the other thing, I, th I think we just talked about this earlier at off mic, but like putting too much money into a movie when you don't necessarily need to put so much money, especially if it's a like, I think we're talking mainly shorts right now, but like you probably don't need to spend more than $2,000 on a short film. Well, I'd say more than 10 to 12 actually, but yes. Well, so I made a bunch of movies like at the 10, 20, 7, 13 around there. But then recently I made like three shorts, like between two and five. And mm. I feel like you can get a, you can get a good short done for that. For that oh, amount. totally. Totally. And it's like, all it's all about the story. Like my most recent short we shot, you know, we shot overnights. I mean, I won't go into all the variables, but there are certain things that inflated the budget beyond we we could never do it for 2k we couldn't right. have done it i yeah. think it's also like if you're going to do the favor thing or not too like if you're if you're going to bring all your yeah. friends out who like owe you favors and you're going to do favors for them like that that's sort of how you can really get it done for that that amount if you're if it's a professional like oh we're mm -hmm. hiring everybody like we've got money then 10 is more reasonable but yeah i don't know take ten thousand dollars put it in the the bucket and save that to make a feature for 50,000. Seems like maybe that's a better way to go. Well, that's, this is crazy. Cause um, that was my philosophy for years is that don't make shorts, make features, save it up for the feature. But um, 
you know, I'm consulting now, like that's my mm. job is consulting. And I just, and I realized like, there's not many shorts consultants and there's like a whole load of sales distribution opportunities that filmmakers don't know about in shorts. And then also like agents and man- managers would rather watch a short than a feature. I just think I discounted the short for so long that now my whole business is I'm going to start supporting shorts filmmakers Hmm. in trying to get their film out there to help their careers a little bit more. So what what is an avenue to make money on a short film? Like besides putting it on a streamer or a, subs- a subscriber channel of some kind? There like, are it- people that like small distribution platforms, small SVOD platforms that do acquire shorts. I don't think they, they don't license for a lot of money. I mean, it's like a thousand dollars, five thousand, you know, it's not like a Hulu deal for a feature, but mm-hmm. There are shorts distributors. There are people looking for short form content. And then also like there's always the opportunity to like team up and fundraise with a nonprofit or someone using your short, like creating an event and then screening the short as part of the event and then charging admission for the event. So there's a a lot of different ways, but I had under... Uh, valued the short until now. And now I'm like learning all of these cool things that you could do. So I'm, it's my part of my journey. So you don't think that if you make a short film, the, the purpose of it is for people to see it and that you should just put it on, out online and like get as many eyeballs on it as possible. You're more like, oh no, like take the short, try to sell it, package it, whatever. It really depends. So like if your goal as a filmmaker is just to get eyeballs, of course, of course, get it online, market the hell out of it. But if your job as a filmmaker is to understand the economics of the system, is to make relationships with distributors, is to get on platforms. I know it feels like a cop out of an answer, but it really depends on your goals. It's more fun if you could just say, here, watch my short. I get it. So, As a consultant, like what would like, let's say I'm a young filmmaker, you know, I want to like, you know, make it big. I want to get in the system. I want to get an agent and a manager. I want to get the big deals. I want to be someone who's going to be in Sundance and fancy pantsy, whatever. Yeah. Um, what would you say to me if I was like going to make a short film? Would you say, oh, yeah, make it try to get it sell, sold to a distributor or whatever? Or would you say make it try to get it on like Crypt TV or whatever, whatever, one of these uh, channels and really get as many views as possible. Like, what would your advice be? I personally would want to see the film, right? And I, Mm -hmm. part of my consultancy is to be somewhat objective and to say, if I feel that this would be a good fit for Fantastic Fest, if this would be a good fit Mm -hmm. for Fantasia or Sitges or whatever it is, you know, to advise on the pathway in the festival world. And then if it's not a festival film to advise on platforms, like we were talking about Weavy, we were talking about- um, Alter is one. That was the one that the goat man yeah. was on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Nate's film is on Alter, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the consultant's job would be able to see where are the different avenues that you can build the biggest audience. So like it used mm-hmm. to be short of the week. Is it still short of the week? I don't know. So I'm learning about all that stuff. That's what I'm researching. Mm-hmm. And I would be an honest bouncing board for that client and not kind of blow smoke up their butt, but like actually make their time efficient. I always just thought like, you know, because there are, as you said, there are opportunities for short films for distribution, but I feel like there's so few of them that like, really, if you're going to make a short, 
it's like, do you want to put it on some unknown SVOD platform that no one's ever heard of before? Hope that you get like a couple bucks a month or whatever through there and, you know, send your friends to watch it and hope they subscribe to watch your short film. But probably they won't because, you know, they're not going to pay $5 a month just to watch one short film. Is that really the way to go? Or is it actually better to just get it on YouTube, get it on Vimeo, your, your, or both your platform of choosing, try to get it on one of these big, uh, you know, channels that have a lot of subscribers and then just get as many views as possible. It's like, is that yeah. a better way? And it's also like, who do you want to be in bed with? Like maybe you love Seed and Spark and you're just dying to work with them. Maybe it's getting your film on Seed and Spark so that you could start a relationship with them. So it's what, what it's a, a relationship pop- with Seed and Spark, actually. Just to be just to be devil's advocate here. Like oh, what is no. that? What is that gonna I mean, because honestly, like if you I've I've crowdfunded through them, right? And like what are they gonna bring to me as a filmmaker if I get my program my film on their, you know, streaming platform? Well, probably promotion. And then also they have an audience already built up. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but I guess my perspective is everything is relationship building. So Mm -hmm. if I work with my distributor, The Orchard, which I did for my first feature, I communicate with them regularly. I thank them. I appreciate them. You know, I give them updates as they distribute the film of things that I'm doing. I'm building relationship. Mm -hmm. All those individuals are probably going to work at different companies in the coming years, in acquisitions, in financing. So for me, it's like, well, if I talk to Clay Pruitt of Seed and Spark, you know, he may start his own company in five years that finances feature projects, developing a relationship with a company that's in line with where I am philosophically, but also with individuals at the company so Mm. that I'm providing benefit to them. And then they in turn feel like it's a symbiotic relationship. And I I feel like I'm going a little bit too much into this, but you're totally right. Like there are films that are not appropriate for this, that where the filmmaker just wants to connect with their audience immediately. And then it's like, Mm -hmm. there's Vimeo, there's YouTube. Even maybe even creating a spot on TikTok to make it like it's an audience building technique. There are a lot of different things you could do. But my job is actually to help people figure out what pathway they want to do. Right. The one last thing I want to say was just like if I find a filmmaker, you know, like we so we got sent a bunch of short films to watch, you know, to consider for our show. And then we were like looking at the list and then like, you know, half of them weren't even available to watch anywhere. Like you had you, you could watch a trailer. You know, but if you wanted to watch the actual thing, you had to sign, sign up for this or sign up for that. Or they weren't even anywhere, some of them. And it's like, you want people to be able to find you to watch your short so they can learn more about you and see your work. Like, you don't want people to find you and then they can see a trailer for a short film or read about the film festivals that got in. But since it's tied up in some distribution deal that you don't have control of, you can't actually share it with yeah. them publicly. I, don't I know. agree that. If those are your goals, you should be able to do that. And it's irritating. But like when, I, when you say you, those are your goals, I guess it's like, for me, it's like my goals are to be the greatest filmmaker I can possibly be and like really mm-hmm. get out in the world and reach as many people as possible. And so it sounds like there's just different ways to do that, right? So it's kind of up to you as a filmmaker to decide what is right for you. And also it's like, what are your options? Like if you're a feature filmmaker and you have a chance to play Sundance, you go the festival route, you submit to Sundance and you really give them a few months of consideration of your time. But if you're thinking this film is not a Sundance film, you know, maybe you go straight to iTunes. So yes, your films get hung up in these restrictions or holdbacks or exclusivities, but it's, um, 
that's all part of your strategy. You're going to make a bigger splash if you get into Sundance, even if you're going right. to maybe be seen by more people if you go directly to distribution. And it is also like I'm not anti-piracy, which I know sounds crazy, <laughs> but I'm not anti-piracy. As a filmmaker, I want my films out immediately. And I want as many people to see it. And I'm okay if they go on Pirate Bay because that means more people are seeing my work. So I get it. Right. But there are a lot of filmmakers who would be totally offended by that idea, right? Right, right. Because they want every single hour and cent accounted for. Um, mm. And I get that too. So it's people are picky and you got to figure out the strategy right. that works for them. Yeah, I guess I'm always a fan of film festivals. I think like film festivals, especially for a short, it's like probably what you want to do no matter what, you know, and then you figure out your release plan after that, whether it's YouTube or, or something else. But yeah, I mean, I guess some people don't do festivals. They just go to release them, you know? I mean, that's but, what Felicia Pride did. I was re-listening to right. her episode and she just right. went online and she said that some festivals don't care. And right. that's a calculated risk that she took. If you're not thinking about the big film festivals, like the, you know, whatever Sundances of the world, then it's probably okay, you know, but if you want to go to the, the bigger ones that are like, oh, ex it has to be exclusive or for, or premieres or whatever, yeah. then it's different. Anyways, thanks, Chris, for the question that spawned a whole other <laughs> discussion that we weren't planning on having, um, you know, much appreciated. If you would like to send us a question, comment, or suggestion, you can uh, do so by sending an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. We also have a Patreon page. So if you want to be like Chris and you love the show, you can go uh, to Patreon, uh, www.patreon.com slash podcast and give us a dollar, $5 or $9 to get one of our, uh, you know, vastly available pins. Oh, oh, we oh, have oh. stickers that are coming to us by the end of October and they're pretty Ooh, beautiful. Stickers. I can't wait. Thanks, Liz. And then lastly... <laughs> go over to our YouTube page and you can discover this whole uh, face uh, comment thing that we've been talking about and you can weigh in and see what the hell this is. Like, what do you think this means? Um, and also please, when you're there, hit subscribe, boom, get our numbers up. And uh, you know, if you have something to say, leave a comment and then we'll talk about that on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but Liz, um, what do we else we got going on here today? What's going on? We have a short film to talk about. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. So Michael Groves, who's actually separately, not in any way related to this, is a new Patreon of the show, submitted his short film and we checked it out and we thought it was worth talking about. It was really interesting. And it seems to have been made from a 24-hour, uh, 48-hour filmmaking contest. 72-hour. Oh, whoa, festival. that luxurious 72-hour yeah, filmmaking They're contest. They're really giving it to them there. <laughs> and I love that the film starts out with uh, warning student filmmaker, I think is what it says. Like, essentially... <laughs> It's like the student driver car that you're buying. Um, so they made a film called Left Behind. And uh, here's Michael Groves to talk about it. Hey, Liz Ulrich and Making Movies is Hard podcast listeners. My name is Mike Groves. Uh, I am the cinematographer and producer of Left Behind. Left Behind was created for 72 Film Fest this year by uh, our team, the Soccer Moms. Soccer Moms consisted of myself, Hunter Dunn, and Mark Rikiti. Hunter was the director and the main actor, and Mark was uh, the metal detector actor. <laughs> 72 Film Fest is a film festival that takes place on the first weekend of October every year. It's based out of Frederick, Maryland, and ran by a group of great people who give you a piece of criteria and give you 72 hours to send them back a completed version of a film. 
this year for their 15th anniversary, they actually used screen grabs from films that were made in the previous 14 years. Once you got the screen grab, you were to use that composition within your own film. The way we chose our story was based on our available resources. We knew the criteria that was given to us from the screen grab, and we knew we needed two characters, one to stand in the foreground of the frame and one in the background of the frame, finding something or carrying something across the frame. We knew that our location was going to be a beach, so we very quickly realized that we could use one of Mark Stad's metal detectors as another prop. So all we needed to find was something metal that was in the ground to carry as that bin in the picture. The one thing you need to know about our friend Mark is he has a spaceship in his room. And I don't mean that figuratively, he literally has a spaceship, the one that's in the logo video at the start of our video. It's cut into four flats and it's in his bedroom. And he has a pile of other sci-fi props and different pieces of things to create props. We decided Mark should disappear because it would be easier to have two people behind the camera for the rest of the short film. When we saw the street light flashing, it inspired us to create our ending. And we knew that whatever it was in the story had to be power based and in some way affect this street light. We originally were going to have Mark come back at the end scene, but Hunter actually pitched that maybe he disappears instead. And we liked that more. So we ended up going with that. That's how we came up with the overall story. We just by piecing together what we had available, honestly. Thursday night, we brainstormed all the, the ideas. Friday, we went to Goodwill and grabbed all the things that we needed um, for the props and various set dressing kind of stuff for the sign. Saturday was our bake shoot day. Saturday at 6 a.m. We woke up, we went for sunrise and we started shooting all of the beginning scene of the metal detecting and the dig once we finished the dig it was around 3 p.m and then um i actually went to a family event we um went to spread my grandparents ashes they passed away earlier this year and for a few hours i went oh i was away during that time mark and hunter did foley and adr and then when i came back it was probably around eight or nine o'clock um, and Mark had gone to bed and me and Hunter, uh, continued to film the rest of the short film, uh, until probably around two, two thirty. So the bulk of the short film was filmed in around 18 hours. Luckily our funding, um, was pretty easy. We kept our cost very low from writing the story to fit everything that we had already owned. We needed to pay for the nine volt battery that went into the metal detector. So that's three bucks. And then the sign that was in the beach, we actually were able to use scrap wood to create that. Mark had a two by four in the shed of his shore house. Um, and then we actually were able to ask his neighbor if they had any plywood. And luckily they had the perfect size. We didn't even have to cut it. So then all we had to buy were the stencils and the paint to create our sign. That's another, we'll round it up to $10. So we're at $13 plus the entry fee to the contest originally. So that's $35, $2 for each flashlight, and then $10 for the DVD player that we used for the motherboard inside of the sci-fi prop. We also needed AAA batteries. And then finally, we got a royalty-free music license to have music for our short film, which Hunter paid for. Annually, it costs, I think, like $150, but for the, for the one month, it's about 15. 
So depending on how you factor that in, our costs are either around $80 or like 150 to 200. Either way, we kept the funds pretty low. We weren't expecting much from the short film. We were just creating the short film for the 72 Film Fest. We didn't anticipate the success of the short film. We won the best student award in the film festival. And I was nominated for best cinematography in the festival against both amateur and pro level filmmakers, which was awesome. <laughs> On top of winning the awards at the 72 Film Festival, I was also told from the Making Movies is Hard Twitter to submit the short film to Get Shorty, something that I hadn't thought of because I feel like my short films aren't at the level of caliber of other short films that have been on here or where people are at as we're just students. I mean, that was, that was pretty cool. <laughs> the main purpose of this is to connect to other people at the end of the day, that was what 72 film fest originally was for and what the short film is for now. One thing that I would like to do differently with the short film is I would love to show where Mark is in it. We originally were going to film pieces of it. But overall, I love how it turned out. I love the feedback we've been getting, how much people have liked it. Um, just knowing that we made something that's good. <laughs> Thank you, Liz and Ulrich for the podcast. Thanks Ulrich for making the podcast with Timothy so long ago. Thank you, Liz, for updating the show and giving it a whole new look and complete overhaul. It kind of needed it after all this time. <laughs> Sorry, Ulrich. <laughs> um, Thank you guys so much for uh, allowing this short film to be in Get Shorty and to be able to share it with the audience. I would love for anyone in the community to give feedback and have a good rest of the week weekend whenever you guys are listening to this or watching or yeah, thanks. Arik, what did you think of Left Behind? So yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I have on my notes here, 72 hour film festival, which is an interesting note, but I mean, I mean, I guess <laughs> the fact that they made it in 72 hours is pretty impressive. I, I don't know if they had the prop beforehand or if they built the prop for the short, but the prop was very cool. I was a big fan of uh, this device they find buried in the desert. I also really like the whole metal detecting um, concept because uh, <laughs> I saw that in, in Timothy Plain, old co-host of the show, he made a short film that has a metal detecting scene as the opening. It's basically the same exact opening scene as this movie is his opening scene for his movie where they like find something in the desert with a metal detector. And that's like the start of the, of the thing. And I think that's a totally fun concept to start a film. I actually wrote writing a film where I started writing a film a long time ago that had the same plot point is like metal detecting finds a thing anyways uh also uh like like the idea of like finding something random i think that's cool just in general especially like on the beach i think that's fun and i liked what happens and then like this emotionally motivated character thing that goes on after there where he like spoiler friend is lost and then he's trying to find his friend um and yeah i i, just, I don't know the ending was cool too <laughs> I want to talk about the ending because I'm confused by the ending a little okay. bit. Um, but I, yeah, I thought it was super fun for, especially for a 72 hour film. The sound was horrible. Michael Groves, don't ever do that again to us. But I actually was very impressed by the indoor cinematography. Like there's that beautiful shot in the, whatever, the workroom, the basement where the, 
a car kept driving outside and flashed inside of the dark room and kind of illuminated mm. the room. And I, it felt like it was planned. I hope it was planned. I thought that was really beautiful. The work in low light. I, I'm going to sound like a dummy, but I, yeah, I didn't get the ending. Like maybe I couldn't see well, or maybe I missed something, but does he disappear in the end? I think so. That's why he what disappears I to find his friend. So he like finally figures out a way to en- enact this device. Is that essentially what happened? Or I just thought that he just ended up pu- pushing the same button and then going where his off to wherever yeah. his friend was. You know, so like he wasn't able to find his friend or save his friend, but he's just wherever his friend is. Yeah, that was my take. Maybe a we little both ambiguous, got it wrong. but <laughs> but interesting. Also, left behind like is a religious title, right? By, oh, interesting. But I didn't see any religious concepts in it. So I'm like, did I miss something? What's, What's the religious on? reference in Left Behind? Well, it's that series of books about the rapture. Oh, uh, right, right. That yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've seen, I think I've seen the movies, but Kirk Cameron did a series of movies. And then Nicolas Cage, my favorite, Love of My Life, Nicolas Cage also did a Left Behind movie. Oh, he just cool. does weird shit all the time and i love him but michael groves i think decent effort interesting idea technically probably needs a little bit more finesse but like 72 hours good job it's interesting because like uh i almost put this on my list it was the interior cinematography especially when like he's like doing this thing where it the camera moves and then it keeps on moving and it's like it feels like it's you know connected but they just did this trick where they hide the cut point right right exactly and they just like pass and pass and he's doing something different i thought that was cool and then they did the other version where it's like in and out and you know it was interesting because it looked like higher quality in the basement than i know outside Outside. and i wonder if it's just because they didn't have proper nd filters or whatever to like set the camera you know in the proper Mm. setting to like film outside like they probably just had to or two different operators maybe or two different cinematographers like i was just wondering because it felt like designed inside and outside it felt like haphazard yeah like i think that what they probably had to close their f-stop like like way Hmm. way high you know like instead of being like open at two eight or something they probably had to go to like 11 i did it once where i had nd filters built into the camera and i just didn't realize it and so i went to 11 and i should have just put the nd on and it would have been it would have looked way better anyways but yeah, but congratulations to Michael Groves on the film. And, um, you know, student, like what level of student are you? College, high school? Probably college, right? Now, who knows? They looked yeah. like early 20s. Yeah, early 20s. Yeah, yeah college. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've talked enough. <laughs> I think we should get to our interview with Jeff and Ray. So uh, here they are. Well, welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Manischel. And I'm Mark Purcell. This week, we're excited to welcome the filmmaking duo of Jeffrey Kerr and Ray Spivey to talk about their new film Writer's Block. Also, we'll be welcoming the far-off noises of my son Colin, who is suffering from a ear infection. So if you hear weird moaning and groaning noises from a small child that's what's going on (laughs) anyway i'll leave it to Arik, who's gonna paraphrase a very cool email that jeff originally sent us 
Yeah, so we don't normally do this. We usually like you know just read like intros from uh, the web or stuff that we write. But the way that Jeff brought this whole you know as an idea to be on the show, I thought it was really cool and interesting. So I'm just gonna read a paraphrased version of uh, Jeff's original email to me. So here it goes. Ray and Jeff vaguely knew each other in high school, graduating together from Houston's Sharpstown High School in 1975. Yes, you read that right. They are older, gentlemen. In 2005, Ray's stepdaughter gave him a copy of Jeff's first book for Christmas that led to their first meeting in 30 years. Ray then illustrated Jeff's next books book, and then after that, they made a documentary together, The Last of the Moonlight Towers. And then they decided to tackle screenwriting, quickly realizing that the only way two nobodies in Austin, Texas would see their words on the screen would be to make the movie themselves. The result is Writer's Block, a psychological thriller currently being submitted to film festivals. So in a nutshell, an aging physician and an aging state employee pull together enough know-how, resources, and talent to produce and direct a feature film. So with that, please welcome to the show Jeff Kerr and Ray Spivey. Hey guys. Thanks very much. And we should note that, that Ray is now a former state employee. He retired last week, so he Well is, done, oh, Ray. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, in November, I became eligible for Social Security, so that's 62 for you young folks, and uh, <laughs> I feel much younger than that. I feel at least 60. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Well, before jumping into the questions, I just want to specify the roles on the film, just to be super clear. So, Jeff and Ray, do you mind just saying exactly what you did on the movie? Well, it was it was a true collaborative effort. We we bill ourselves as co-producers, co-directors, and co-writers. Um, so I, I think we did kind of pulled an equal share. We we both took on different tasks along the way, but uh, yeah, it was as I say a truly collaborative effort. Wow, nice. So I'm just really curious, like getting to know each other after 30 years. Like, how did it come about to collaborate in this way? Was it just something that like you just naturally fell into, or was it something that you discussed, or how how did that work out? Yeah, we, we we started with the illustrations on the books, and I, I think Jeff was up against a deadline, so there are a number of illustrations. So we, we, we really got a good idea of how to work under pressure together. Uh, then we were originally going to do a book on Austin's Moonlight Towers, and most people know this from Dazed and Confused, you know, Party at the Moon Tower. And a friend had suggested, don't do a book, do a documentary. So we pulled out the old Canon cameras and interviewed lots of people and shot it. Uh, but we, we just had a great time doing that. And after that, we decided, you know, let's let's take the next step and and test this friendship to the max and do a feature film. And so we took a screenwriting class, watched a bunch of seminars and everything, and we got the script accepted into a uh, film festival, the Beverly Hills Film Festival. And from there, we met a lot of folks from around the country, and we decided we're too old to do the short. We don't have a lot of time. Let's just jump into the feature film. <laughs> And is this like an itch you've wanted to scratch for the past 40, 50 years? Like, have you always wanted to make movies? Or is this, like you were saying, a test of the friendship? Why movies? I think for me, I, I've probably have always wanted to be a filmmaker. Folks always remind me of various videos I've shot over the years for friends or, or skits or things like that. But I, I think what really made it possible for us was the equipment became somewhat affordable as opposed to shooting on film. And and for me, it was more a 40-year itch to do creative things. I didn't uh, know about the screenwriting itch or the, the filmmaking itch until just a few years ago when Ray kind of guided me in that direction. Uh, interesting. So you were writing first as the first scratch to that itch, basically? That's right. So I love to hear that you guys took a screenwriting class together. I think that's great. But um, 
where did the idea for writer's block come from? Was it just something that you guys, you know, kind of spitballed and came up together? Was it like one person's idea that like one suggested the other? Like how did the movie itself uh, become a thing? Well, Ray came up with the germ of the idea, so we'll let him tell that story. Sure. I, I was driving around in West Texas, which is a very vast place, nothing but miles and miles and miles and miles, and stopped in Archer City, Texas, which is kind of famous because the last picture show was filmed there, and author Larry McMurtry lives there, very famous author. And Larry at the time had a series of bookstores there in the downtown square, and it's kind of self-service. You walk in these big warehouses and the shelves tower, and as I was kind of going through there, I said, you know, one of those fell on me. I probably, uh, nobody would find me for days. And so uh, as I was leaving the town, I this idea kind of came about, what if Larry wasn't Larry and he didn't have his talent anymore and he lured people to this very far West Texas town to kind of like take their stories and then I proposed the idea to Jeff and we started cranking out on the word processors and uh, there we were. Awesome. How did you approach the writing? Did you meet every day and like write together as a team? Or would it be like one person do a draft, the other person do a draft? Or did you tackle separate scenes? Like how was that process? We had developed an outline, a beat sheet, and divided that into eight parts. And then I took, I think, one, three, five, and seven. And Ray took two, four, six, and eight. And we wrote that individually. And then we, then we put that together and, and started working together from there. And the whole time, did you think we are going to make this movie or did it feel like a lark? Like, how serious were you about this process? I, I think we were serious about doing something with it from the start. Originally, we were thinking along the lines of a short just because of budgetary constraints. It was one of those, uh, it was mission creep, really. <laughs> we would come up with an idea to take it a little bit further and then realize, well, to really do it right, we'd need a little bit more. And then, um, as Ray said earlier, we went to the... Uh, the Beverly Hills Film Festival and realized, you know, if we're going to sink a lot of time and resources into this, we should just go for the gold and try to make the feature film. And and what's laughable is, is early on, because we thought we were going to shoot this in 2K and run and gun and everything, we were really talking about numbers of, could we do this if we each chipped in $10,000? And we had some meetings with some of the Austin folks in the production business, and uh, the laughter was quite loud. Well, we should get to that. I really want to talk about budget, but that's not crazy to make a movie for $20,000. It's not, but I think what we really wanted to do was make sure this looked cinematic. And, and I think we made some excellent decisions on our cinematographer and our gaffer with the lighting. We really kind of had a little bit of a Picasso genius there uh, with the lighting. And I, I think that's really what added that real look to the film plus we used re uh, minis you know to shoot the film so I, uh, that was real important to us to make sure the look was really good nice so then let's say you get back from the beverly hills film festival you realize okay we're not going to do a short film we're going to do the feature so you reached out to like local filmmakers in in austin and how did you find those people were they people you knew or did you like just go onto google and find people like how did that work I had uh, just coincidentally met a local actor, Craig Nye, and I mentioned the project to him, and he expressed interest in appearing in the film. And, and really, our entire cast and crew started from conversations with Craig. He would recommend so-and-so, and then we would talk to that person who would have recommendations. So it was all word of mouth, um, and uh, almost everybody is local. There's only a couple exceptions there, but uh, they both have strong connect Texas connections, so we were able to do it all with local talent, both cast and crew. 
Wow, that's awesome. And so then once you like start to get the sense that your your 20K might not be enough, like what's the next step? <laughs> Talk to our wives. Uh, we jo- we, 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 that, that, we, isn't that always the case? You talk to your spouse, right? It, it, it is. I mean, the joke was between Jeff and me is we can spend as much money right up to the point that our wives would be willing to divorce us. And we got pretty close. <laughs> wow. But uh, this is a true story. My wife, Scarlett, who's Swedish, by the way, ended up uh, telling me that if I would not do this film, she would give me $150,000. And then she was very worried that I was going to overwork myself on this, which she was right. And I, my first thought was, we're a community property state. Isn't that like half my money? And then my second thought was, do we have 150000 lying around like this? Wait, she was going to pay you not to do the movie? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because wow. of the anxiety or how it's affecting the relationship or because... I'm, I'm, I'm lo- I get the sentiment, but I'm a little lost on the direction. She knows that I am a workaholic and that I would probably kill myself doing this. And she was close to right. <laughs> and, and for me, it was kind of starting the other way around. I, I would come home and say, well, I think we're going to need X amount to do this. And my wife would think about it for a couple of days and say, well, okay. And then a couple of weeks later, I'd come home and say, well, now it's really probably going to be X plus Y. And that happened a few times. And finally she said, well, how much, just what's the bottom line? What's it going to cost? And frankly, I didn't know. <laughs> but she was very supportive. And uh, I feel lucky. They were the studio executives. Exactly. Yeah, they had they, they gave us the green light. That's awesome. So basically, you just self-funded the whole thing. You didn't do any crowdfunding. You didn't do any uh, outside investment and that stuff. We, we actually did. We, we did a Seed and Spark campaign uh, oh, like you, cool. you did. And yeah. uh, I think I think we pulled in about 20000 off of that. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. It was, it was really nice, as you, as you know. And uh, it really helped fill a hole there. Plus, we had a lot of friends. My job at, at the time was I worked as a government relations person. And so that puts me in the Austin Capital group where we have a lot of friends that are lobbyists and folks like that. And a lot of them are very supportive of the arts. And Jeff, you had uh, doctor friends, right? I had a few of those. And then my accountant stepped up uh, just out of the blue with a really generous donation. I was amazed and really grateful to these folks for offering to fund this dream. And did you think of it as patronage or did you think of it as an investment? Like, what kind of idea did you have about whether the film would make any money we had no illusions that it really would make money we thought if that happened that was a plus but uh, we really just wanted our friends to know we're doing this and if you want to come along with us for the ride it'll be fun and and many of our friends actually acted in the film so that was another budget saver for us and i thought they did outstanding jobs it, it kind of sounds like it's a sort of the same story as a lot of us. It's like you start with some seed money that you get either from your own bank account or family and friends, wherever you can get it. Then you like probably do a crowdfunding and then maybe you find some other investments out in the world through your connections, either before or after the crowdfunding. And that's just sort of, that's exactly my story. That took me five years to, to do, basically. And I know Liz is similar. And then just shout out really quick to Seed and Spark and how great those guys are. Really awesome company. They really are. We we had gone to, wasn't it Awesome Film Festival, Jeff, when we met the CEO? And I, I told her at the time, I, I thought you were really one of the best public speakers I've ever seen. She blew me away. That's awesome. So then you get your, your budget together. You kind of have your crew already. What was your schedule like? Did you shoot it all at once, like across 15, 20 days or something? Or did you shoot it across a longer period of time? Like how did the production work? 
We uh, shot it over 18 days, and we tried to take a break. And, and, of course, according to when we could get locations, we were very fortunate all of our locations were free. But we got some rather exotic locations. One was the former Speaker of the Texas House, a gentleman named Gib Lewis, who is a world-class hunter. And according to our story, the main villain is somebody that likes to go out and collect trophies. And we originally saw this as we put a few deer heads up, and I actually knew somebody that couldn't believe it has a stuffed lion in their office. And we thought, this is what we do. And then we got connected back with Speaker Lewis, go out to his exotic game ranch, and he has these two massive massive rooms that if it's walk the earth there it is it is mind-blowing and it just made for an absolutely spectacular backdrop for this megalomaniac who's out to make a trophy out of everything how did he feel about his location being the villain's lair (laughs) did he feel proud tell him that right (laughs) uh no yeah, yeah no he he was great with it in fact he had so much fun coming out and meeting the crew and the cast and everybody that day and he was just proud to have uh the rooms in a movie he just couldn't have been more generous he was very gracious Wow. So free locations, that's huge. I also experienced that on my movie, which was great. I mean, it's it's almost like, how could you do it if you didn't have free locations? It's like really challenging. But uh, what what other uh, resources did you guys pull together in order to like get this thing done? Did you have any interns come out or was it all crew paid? And, and what size was your crew, roughly? We had about 20 to 25 it was a fair number of folks, and there were three unpaid interns that the first director brought along. The rest were paid. You know, some of them agreed to, to take less than what they would ordinarily work for, which we were grateful for. But you know, multiply, it, it was an 18-day shoot, and you multiply a small number by 18, and it turns into a bigger number, and then add all those together, and it was an even bigger number. Nevertheless, we were able to pull it off. It was tough. And we did slip the interns. I remember Jeff and I were taking out as much pocket cash as we had, which was dwindling very fast, and slipping it to the interns whenever we could, because we certainly remember those days when we were in our 20s and starving. So, uh, And those guys worked as hard as anybody, maybe even harder. Yeah. I guess the question that we haven't asked yet is, how did you know how to direct, if that makes sense? Like, were you worried that you were going to go forward and overlap with another role or say the wrong thing or what? You guys seem very calm and it's it's very disarming to me. How did you know that you could direct? Well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure we did. <laughs> we both had a vision for what we wanted the film to look like. And, and I'll say, I mean, we may sound calm, but that 18 days was as hard as I've ever worked in my life. And we learned a lot on the fly, truthfully. Plus, it helped having more experienced folks around us to give us some guidance. Yeah, we we would certainly say we would change the name of your show to put an expletive in front of the word hard. So, <laughs> but but one of the things that that helped, we we did go out for a quick what two day shoot to do a proof of concept film, and we were out there. And so the very first scene we shot was in a friend's office, and he has this long ninety something inch conference table. And our wonderful lighting guy decided to go stand on it. And then when he jumped off of it, he cracked the glass on it. And so here we have this friend whose glass is totally cracked. We can't get it fixed right away and all this. And that was how we started the shooting. And we kind of talked to ourselves and said, you know, if we can just kind of get past this, there'll be other things. But this is good trial by fire. And you talked about taking a screenwriting class, but did you guys take any kind of directing class together or, or did you just sort of figure, oh, we'll figure it out as we go? 
we, we didn't take any directing classes. We both read several books. We went to some seminars, but um, no actual classes like we did with the screenwriting. Yeah, a couple things that really helped me was Ron Howard's master class. Oh, boy, is that just helpful as can be. And there is the famous book by Judith Weston. Directing actors. Directing yeah. actors, yeah. And I, I really wanted to get in that because one of the things that we had, we were so fortunate, was to have four main actors in the film who had been in some very big productions, like Chris Warner had been in No Country for Old Men, has a wonderful solo scene with Tommy Lee Jones. But they had all been in productions and knew how to act. They knew the craft. They just had hadn't made it big time. So we were so fortunate to have them. And, and I think we just wanted to make sure we made them comfortable and let them do what they did best. Oh, that's awesome. And so when you guys were directing, did you have a certain process that you would do? Like, was, uh, you know, one of you the more technical one and one the more talking to the actors? Or did you guys do everything together equally? Like, how was your approach to co-directing? I would say mostly I would kind of step back and let Ray take the lead when the scene was actually being shot, but then we would collaborate and get together you know, after the camera went off and talk about whether we liked it or wanted to change something. Yeah, we, we did have a couple of funny moments. One of our actors, Mike Gassaway, uh, who plays the older villain, uh, loves to ad lib. And there were a lot of times he was saying things that weren't in the script and Jeff and I were scrambling around going like, okay, he's saying something, this may be good, but doesn't mess up the plot at the end and everything. So I remember one time Mike had said something, Jeff goes and gives him a direction. Then I go and give him a direction and we conferred later. We would given him opposite directions. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> so we, we had to stop that. We learned a few things the hard way. So did you decide like one person will give the directions from that point on, or did you just say like, Oh, we'll just talk about the direction before we give it. I think we just kind of signaled, like whoever had an idea said, go, you go talk to that person. I know this is jumping ahead, but did it work? Like, do you feel that you made the movie that you have in your mind? Because I can see you two on set. Like I am picturing the two of you and I'm loving this, this imagery, but are you happy? With the final product? Yeah. And the experience, I guess, too. Very. Absolutely. I, I think it was a wonderful experience and, and the final product is something I'm pleased and proud of. Right. I, I think through the, even the toughest times, we're filming at three o'clock in the morning up in the Texas Hill Country. It's very cold and you know, we're trying to keep morale up and everything. But I, I just told myself, you know, you may never get to do this again. So enjoy every minute. And I, I think Jeff and I were always both supportive of that idea that this is something you've always wanted to do. Love what you're doing. Yeah, I had similar feelings when I was making my movie, just like when it got hard, just be like, just, you got to enjoy it. You know, like this might be your only feature. Keep going, have fun, get through it, that those kinds of things. So I have a question about production. Did you ever go over on your days or were you guys making your days consistently? Like, what was that experience like? We, we did not have the option to go over and we knew that right from the start. So we, we had a very detailed schedule that our first director, first assistant director uh, created, and we tried very hard to adhere to that. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was one of the most exhilarating parts of the film for us as screenwriters, that we had to write this under pressure. So I, I think within 45 minutes, where you and I first talked about the scenes, because we needed to cut out a lot, and we were going to shoot it pretty much the next day. And then I think within 45 minutes, you had written one scene, I had written the other. And I, I think I was very proud of, of the fact that we did this uh, pretty well under pressure. I, I thought everybody did a great job in pushing the schedule and helping us stay on time. 
I clearly, all my questions are about imposter syndrome. So sorry about that. <laughs> but I just want to know, like, did you have, and you don't have to mention names or I don't know what you feel comfortable talking about, but was there a crew member or a cast member who just didn't trust first time directors or who kind of usurped authority? And then like, how did you deal with that? Uh, the short answer to that is yes. Ray, would you like to elaborate on that? Oh, I'd have to go through my volumes and notes here. Let me see. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, people knew we were first-time directors, and uh, it showed. I mean, I, I remember we made some really stupid, stupid mistakes. I, I think that was going to happen, and and I think as time went on, of course, the actors were with us most of the way. I, Chris Warner, one of our main actors who plays one of the villains, and he just did a fantastic job, but Chris told us right from the beginning, he said, it doesn't matter if you're in a high school play, or you're in Star Wars, actors are going to fight you because they're going to want to do the scenes to make their scene more memorable, to make it stand out. And he says, that's just the way it is. He says, I'm going to do it. And so that was some great advice for us to try to work to make sure that, that nobody really went too far out of bounds and they weren't stepping on each other. Because I think in the end, all four of these wonderful actors, it really was more of an ensemble part and they just did well. And I would say that the, the majority of the cast and crew, they were, it was a collaborative effort and they were, um, you, you could tell they were motivated to, to make the best product we could and they were team players. Can you give us one example of a stupid, stupid mistake that you guys made early on? I think we would both agree that our biggest mistake was right at the end, somebody had suggested that we needed a wardrobe coordinator and we were fed up with adding another few thousand here and a few thousand there to our budget and we said, no, we can do it ourselves. And that was absolutely the wrong approach to take because that was a near disaster within the first few days. Right. What crew positions did you decide not to go forward with? So it sounds like you didn't have wardrobe, uh, but did you have a scripty? Did you have, you know, did camera have their full crew? What did you think you didn't need? Yeah, everybody had the full crew. That was the one critical position that we didn't have. Plus, I would say caterer. We had somebody that was helping us on catering at the beginning, and then she got a job in in the real world. And so Jeff took that on. Wow. And if we, Jeff, please talk about that because that killed you. It it really did. I mean, from the start when we were just talking to other people around in the business about how to have a good shoot, then one of the first things they would always say is make the crew happy by feeding them well. So we knew that was important going in. And I thought I had a person lined up to kind of coordinate the logistics of that each day. I had lined up, okay, we're going to get it from this place this day and this place the next day. And this person was going to do all the legwork. And that fell through at the last minute. So during the middle of the shoot, I was having to do a lot of that. And I think the other thing, we got very proficient with the vacuum cleaner and the broom having to clean up every night. (laughs) So did you guys end up getting a wardrobe uh, person? Uh, after the first few days, or did you end up just doing it yourselves the whole time? We did. It was hard to find somebody on the fly like that, but we actually started with one, and she could only do a couple days, and then somebody else came in. Rachel filled out fabulously at the end, so then we were able to, to get together, and we had a script supervisor that you know cued her in on, on the changes and stuff. So once we got past that, I think that took 90% of the stress off of our plates. Wow. Yeah, on my movie, it was the script supervisor for me. So, like, we didn't have one because I didn't think that we needed one, and I was comfortable without one. And then my AD and a couple other of my crew and my producer all were like, oh, I thought we had a script supervisor. Like, we need one. And I was like, uh, if you guys think so, I, I think we're fine without it. And then they got one, and then it, it was great. She was awesome. But, I mean, 
the movie we still would have gotten made. It still would have been fine if we didn't have a scripty. But it was great to work with one. Yeah, we didn't have an AD on our most recent shoot, and it it's become the greatest <laughs> regret of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ADs, man. I gotta have an AD. It's like so so important. But the other question I had was, did you not have like a lead producer who was taking care of the logistics for you during the shoot? I think we both were. I, I know this would help sometimes that Jeff would direct and I'd be out of the room on the phone working on even raising money. We were still raising money while we were shooting. We'd have calls out there and everything. Wow. So we were kind of doing it all. But we, we really kind of really acted as the producers and making sure that the next couple of days uh, sets were available and everything was working well. So would you do that again, or would you try to have a producer that would just handle the logistics, crafty, all that stuff for you so you didn't have to worry about it? I think ideally we would love to have somebody do that, and uh, that would sure take a lot of load off your your plate. Um, It is a lot to handle the budget, and and, you know, Chris, we're not saying anything that any indie filmmaker doesn't do, but as you know, it's, it's a lot to do everything. What else would you do differently? I think that we would have also had more pre-planning more time for pre-planning we actually had one of the actors wanted to drop out about a month before we started shooting i think he, he was just panicky about himself and all this stuff and we convinced him to stay in but there was this definite call like push this back you need to push this back six months and we just couldn't do it uh, mainly because of my work schedule uh, the other thing about it was to absolutely make sure next time that we had more time for rehearsal. We got into the process very late, and two of the actors did not want to rehearse. And it oh. just kind of, it hurt us. They were more uh, spontaneous type of actors, you know. So the other thing is we didn't get the complete shot list until two days into shooting. We got most of it. We were ready to get going, but I'm an artist, and we did storyboard some of the key shots that we wanted to do. Jeff had storyboarded some some scenes very intricately, but we wish uh, we had had more time to actually have the storyboards more sound and, and complete. And so did you shot list yourselves, or did you guys work with your cinematographer on the shot list? How did you guys approach that part? Yeah, we, we let the cinematographer come up with most of it. We had submitted our notes to him along with the storyboards we had, and he, he kind of fashioned it together. I think the problem was is Alex had gotten inundated with a lot of work before he did our shooting, and of course it was, it was hard for him to turn it down because that's how he makes his living. Right. Yeah, I had the same thing with my cinematographer, too. Like, he just was super busy on other projects um, beforehand. And, you know, since he had to take a massive, massive pay cut to do the feature, it was like, you know, he couldn't really turn things down. But I mean, we managed to, like, work it out where we could do the scout together and, 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 like, production meetings. And, you know, we worked on the whole script together and, like, shot listed most of it. But, it, like, getting the actual physical shot list, I had the same kind of issue with that. And I and ended up, like, basically making the shot list, like, the day before for the next day and then reviewing it with the, with the DP after the end of the day shooting and then sending it out to the, the team that night, you know. So we'd always have a shot list for the next day. It just wasn't in advance, you know. Right. So you finish shooting and you're in post-production. How do you know when the movie's over? If you've never made a film before, are you focus group testing? Are you basing everything off your instincts? Is, is this the Coen Brothers thing where one picks the end point and one picks the out point? How are you going through editorial? Right now, we, we have tested it to probably some 400 people. We had a, a screening 
with the cast and crew and supporters and it was very rough actually it wasn't even finished at that point some of the sound wasn't complete at that time we've since shown it to various groups and even right now even though we have a version out there for the film festival circuit there's probably a few more tweaks we're we're trying to make i think we're very proud of the fact that this is very solid for the very first time we're directing but we're still trying to tweak it a little bit more to make the movie a little bit more balanced and then how did you approach the editing was it like you and jeff together just editing it or what was did you have an editor that you hired what was the approach there We hired an editor and gave him a basic outline of what we wanted. He pieced it together, and then we had several viewings where Ray and I were both there while we went back through it with him. And, like, you're basically talking about doing these re-edits, you know, as you're getting into film festivals and submitting. Like, is is your editor part of these re-edits, too, or did he kind of hand it off to you at this point? I think think I've been doing this with Jeff. We've been doing these smaller cuts, and, and I think we feel somewhat competent enough to do that. Well, I have an uncomfortable question to ask. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase it. I'm just thinking of two cool dudes making their first film. I can't believe I just said dudes. Maybe it's a Texas thing. I I can't believe you said cool. (laughs) But here's where it gets uncomfortable. I'm hearing, and I use the word guys all the time, and I'm hearing a lot of like male pronouns in reference to your crew members. And I guess I'm wondering, like, with such a spotlight on diversity, were you trying to hire a diverse cast and crew when you were building the film? Was it just like you were talking about, kind of word of mouth, whoever comes to us gets to be a part of it? Did you build your team in a pointed fashion the way a lot of people are are specifically doing that these days? Or how did you figure out who the collaborators were going to be? Well, we, we were cognizant of trying to have diversity right from the start. Um, and I guess we've been saying he a lot, but we had a lot of women on our crew and cast. Fewer in the cast, more in the crew. But we actually, before we started shooting, kind of rewrote it, too, to create a much stronger role for our female lead. So that was something we were thinking about all along. I don't know that we started out with specific, oh, we have to have this many of this and this many of that. But but we were sensitive to that need going going throughout the film. Yeah, I, I had a real mind for diversity, as did Jeff. I'm Asian American. Our executive producer is African American. We had a uh, Asian American assistant director, and one of the main stars is Latina. So we wanted, especially the Latina thing that uh, Jeannie Carter Cruz played as as one of the main actors, because it's very reflective of Texas and its diversity. And actually, we wanted somebody that could speak Spanish well, and so Jeannie actually had a marvelous accent and command of Spanish. I love it. Thank you. Like, I just think uh, it's something that we haven't talked about. And I know it's crazy. And I think there's a lot of ageism in this world. And there's a lot of idea that if you were to be a little bit older in uh, making your first feature, you might create a movie like we did 20 years ago, unfortunately. But I love that you made the movie of 2019, 2020 as your first film, even though you kickstarted it a little bit later in life. Yeah, and, and, and Liz, the, the toughest part about that was the women's role. I mean, Jeff has a daughter, wife, mother living with him. I take care of two moms, uh, wife, two daughters, sister. And and we were really working really hard. And I can't tell you how many times we had to rewrite Jeannie's role. And as we told her, you have the toughest assignment in this film and that you are actually playing three different characters she's actually playing uh, fictitious versions of herself to kind of fool certain folks in the script and she did an absolutely amazing job she actually did a lot of research 
on her own on how a serial killer behaves. And she really brought it. And I think it, the great thing about Jeannie is as we started, because she didn't have near the acting background in a full feature film as some of the others, but everybody agreed. She just kept getting stronger and stronger throughout. And at the end, I mean, she was just blowing everybody away. The cast and crew were walking away after her performances. Goes, oh my gosh, that was incredible. And she was. Wow, that's awesome. I want to go back to the thing that you'd mentioned earlier that you kind of like glided over a little bit, but um, you said that some of the crew did have some issues with you guys being first time directors and you guys had to resolve those difficulties. Like, can you talk more specifically about that? Like what exactly the, the issue they had was and how you guys, you know, combated that? Let me text my attorney here first. No, um, you know, I, I think one of the other issues that y'all just brought up was the age. You know, we're, we're baby boomers, which is a bad word these days. And we had a lot of Generation Z folks, I guess, on there, or, or millennials on, on staff. And I, I think we're both lucky in that in our real workplaces. We work with younger folks. My coworker, where I used to work, is uh, right now she's about 30. And we, we have a marvelous working relationship. So we had some insights on how to deal with them. But, you know, again, the mindset of how you tackle things are, are completely different from our age group versus theirs plus i I think you know that you you go back to the differences of how they're wired you know that i think the younger generation marvelously thinks that they need to have leadership they need to know what's going on they want to know the whys and they want to feel part of that and I, i think having that insight jeff and i felt very fortunate to try to bring them along now granted you know we're in a business that's artistic and sometimes the wiring in our brains doesn't really work that way that you can get your feelings hurt real easily because uh, highly creative people can be that way. They, they believe that their ideas are the best and there's, there's, there's debate about that. But overall, I, I think the fact that Jeff and I were, were fairly calm about it and there was no yelling or anything like that, we were not going to destroy the set based on a, a few disagreement points. I would agree. I, I think that overall we were able to maintain good relationships, good working relationships with everybody, and um, we did try very hard to keep a calm atmosphere on set. Some of our older cast and crew were very helpful in that regard, and I think that paid off. So what were these disagreements or these these issues? Were they kind of like story-based and creative-based, or was it more things like the way that you were operating or running the set as directors? Or was it more like, oh, the story beat doesn't make any sense. Like, why is this happening? I don't think there was much argument about story itself. I think it was more about how things were being run and then maybe uh, folks really offering suggestions that was outside of their realm of, of, of their job, kind of overstepping their bounds a couple of times. Like of, of how to work with actors or to that nature? Or can, can you be more specific on like what the what the actual thing they were suggesting well, a couple of the crew members who's, who had other jobs would, you know, once the camera went off, be shouting out, well, this should happen, you should do that, to the actors or to other crew members. And it really wasn't appropriate for that for those people to be doing that in that fashion. Oh, so they were basically like backseat directing. Yeah, I think that basically. happened a few times. And then how did you guys deal with that? Did you just take them aside and speak to them about that? Or did you have your ADs talk to them? Or like, how did that go? I'm trying to remember. There were a couple of times when we spoke directly to them, a couple of times that uh, we would say something to somebody that we knew that they respected. 
Yeah, I, I think we tried to go through the chain of command as much we, as we could. I, I know one trying day, we were doing an action sequence in a parking garage, and everybody was tired. We had some really long nights before, and it was just slow. Uh, one of the actors dropped a prop gun, and the barrel broke, and they were having trouble re-gluing it. Uh, it was the adventures in trying to make super glue work. It never does when you want it to. And it was just going really slow. So Jeff and I kind of jumped in there and tried to pick up the pace. And, and I think we offended some people that felt we were doing their jobs, but we just had to. We were dying. I, I think it took us about 45 minutes, for example, to fix that gun. Oh, yeah. And, and this was an intricate scene because the timing had to be really well. We uh, fortunately had an old beat-up van in there that Jeff friend had actually driven one just like it when he was a kid so he knew how to bring this thing to a full speed and slam on the brakes and then the idea is that somebody's getting thrown into the back of the van so it had wow. to be pretty much bam 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 and i i don't think that a lot of the younger crew that we had had much experience filming action scenes and it kind of struck me as funny that jeff and i kind of had a better idea we felt on how to get the timing of this just right so it, it created a few hard feelings but we got out of there alive and uh i think in the end it turned out pretty well it also sounds like it created or instilled some confidence in you two as directors to have that pushback and to remind yourselves of your authority and your experience even if it's not necessarily on a film set Right. I, I mean, I think every day was a, a confidence builder that you got through it. And when you would see the footage, either as we're watching playback or at the end of the day, you just couldn't help but feel very proud of what you had accomplished because we had so many friends that were screenwriters and, and folks that have been in this business that are currently working in Hollywood and told us, you know, I'll, I'll never have the opportunity to do what you guys did with budgeting and putting it together, casting and everything like that. And uh, you guys have the mm to go ahead and do it rather than just talk about it. Yeah. It does take a lot to will a movie into existence. So it's like, it, you know, anyone who makes a feature film, I like my hats off to because I know how much work that it has been. Even before I made mine, I knew how much work it, it is. But uh, yeah, it's it's quite the endeavor. I guess the, the next series of questions I have are kind of more about like, you've got the movie done, you're proud of it, and now you're trying to get it out into the world. Like, what's your approach been? Are you just submitting to a bunch of film festivals? Like, how are you approaching that? Yeah, we are. We have submitted to a bunch of film festivals, and 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 shock and surprise, Sundance did not pick us. So, uh, <laughs> but but we knew that was a long shot. That was like winning the lottery. Uh, currently, we have been selected by two film festivals, and I think we got about fifteen or sixteen that we're waiting to hear from in the next three months. So, one is a local film festival here in Austin. It's the Lake Travis Film Festival in beautiful Lakeway, which is a suburb of Austin, and so we're in that one. And I think we're in the quarterfinals for best picture and then an interesting one we actually got selected by the vienna independent film festival which will be in july and and we're up for a best picture in that as well so oh, wow. uh jeff is going to fly over there and represent us in that one and uh it, i think it'll be more than a little bit of fun for him to go there wow what's your game plan when you are at these festivals i mean are you going there expecting you know, with a second feature script ready to build your team for your second feature? Or is it just kind of to bath in the glory that is you finished this film? Well, I, I think it is to try to put this film out there and build up 
awareness of the film and eventually to get it sold. We, we have also, to finish your question, spoken to some folks out in California who have been look, are currently right now looking at the film uh, in terms of sales and marketing. And then uh, we also are going to be contacting some other folks uh, after this first film festival, which is well, our first premiere or showing will be February 27th. So once we get that out of the way, we'll be working to possibly sell the film video on demand. That's awesome. So the basic plan is get into as many film festivals as possible and then also just get the best distribution deal. Like, are you planning on doing any kind of self-distribution or are you just trying to find the best partner to partner with? I kind of really hope we don't have to do self-distribution, you know, if it comes to that, of course. But but I think the film is kind of quirky in a way in that it's a thriller and it's got murder in it and a little bit of horror, just a touch. It's not a horror film per se. So in a lot of ways, for the kind of film festivals we're in, we're not probably going to touch the chord with them. You know, we're not a movie with this great message, you know, of, of hope and understanding and all this. But I think we're a movie that should fall pretty well into something that people are going to watch video on demand that love to watch, you know, horror or murder or mystery in, in their own home. And, and of course, if we could get a theatrical screening, it'd be fantastic. But again, for our budget, which I, I will confess was very low budget, we came in probably around 140 thousands. So uh, it was not nearly what I think your last podcast had. I think they had like 600,000, what we wouldn't have given for that one. (laughs) I don't think that's a common story, but it's very low budget. But I think the quality of what we came up with uh, really, you know, met our goals. So uh, Jeff, like what, what's your thoughts about the post uh, making the movie and like trying to get it out there? Like, what's your main goals now? Like, do do, like we, we asked earlier, like, do you guys have another project that you're lined up or is it all just t- trying to get a writer's block out there and have that be the biggest splash that it can have. Yeah, I, I would say part B there. Our goal right now is to devote our time and energy to um, finding an outlet for this and getting as front as, as many people as we can, probably through online streaming. And it would be nice to recover some of our investment, but mainly the idea is to get it out there, hopefully people like it, and build somewhat of a reputation. Right. You've already written another script, correct? And I think we kind of decided, boy, after a book, a documentary and this, we're, we're taking a little bit of a break, but we're still writing individually. And I know we've got a couple other scripts we've written together as well that need some polishing. But it sounds like, I mean, to me, it's like when you're at the film festival or when you're in the part of like promoting your movie and it's finally coming out to the world, that's kind of like when you want to have those next scripts or that next script ready to pitch because that's when people are going to be asking you like, oh, do you have anything else, you know? So it's good that you guys already have that kind of lined up. We've both got several in our pocket that uh, we wrote individually and together. So I think we're ready for that. Do you have one in mind that you would be like, this is the standout that we'd prefer to make next if we uh, had our druthers? Or, or is it just like you are into all of the ideas? Yeah, I, I think that this process has been very, very challenging. And like most first-time filmmakers, we, we probably didn't plan this out. I, I think we did talk about this like two or three years ago, about having other scripts ready. But we just, honestly, I think Jeff has written a complete script. I think I've got a half a script. And then we have some others that need some more polishing. But I, I don't think what we had planned this as well as we probably could have. We, you're right. We probably could benefit from having more finished scripts ready at this point. Just a reminder that Jeff and Ray's movie Writer's Block will be out tomorrow, November 3rd, on iTunes and Amazon Prime. 
and everywhere else you can get VOD titles. So go check it out. That's uh, Amazon Prime and iTunes for Writer's Block. Take it away. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Jeff and Ray for being on the show to talk about Writer's Block. So we'll have links in the show notes to where you can find the movie. Um, It looks really cool. It's funny. We didn't really talk about it much um, before the interview, but it's like an action movie made by these guys called Writer's Block, which is really funny title for an action movie. But yeah, the, looks looks cool um i like also just check- as an aside i really like them i didn't talk about it <laughs> earlier but i really like them i think we should also support the film because they are wonderful and it's a very different type of conversation we don't usually talk to people who are like making films later in life like yeah. you know had full careers full things they've done and then they were like you know retired or about to retire and we're just like hey let's make this movie together so mm-hmm. i think it's a really cool story and uh, definitely worth uh, checking out Speaking of things to check out, you can check out our website, makingmoviesinside.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode, including the trailer for Writer's Block and some other things. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesinside.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where are you? I'm Liz Manischel on Twitter and where I basically just talk about Mike, Mike Flanagan all the time. And then Liz Manischel <laughs> film on Instagram. Also, uh, if you like the show, please tell a friend, spread the word, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wait, did you say Spotify is now letting people leave reviews? Oh, they do rankings now. They're rankings. rankings. Yeah. Rank us high, whatever that means. And then go to YouTube for the love of God and, uh, you know, subscribe and, uh, you know, join the conversation. It's a lot of fun over on YouTube. We actually, we're working on getting some new editors in. It's been cool, but uh, some people don't <laughs> don't really want to do video, which is funny because it's like mm. before that wouldn't have been a problem, but now it's like, oh yeah, you can't do video. Well, oh, you can only use iMovie. Uh, it's not going to work, but we're working on uh, bringing some people into the fold. So uh, hopefully we'll have new people to thank soon. Anyways, enough jibber jabber. Have a great uh, week and podcast. Will you ever make a poll, Liz, one day? Maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs>